Hi, this is Anne Markham Bailey, producer and host of Present Tense. Just a quick note before we move into the episode, if you'd like to learn more about Wild South and about the the warriors who are being interviewed in the series, The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places, check out our new website. It's presenttense.media. There's supporting information, there's links to the show, and there's links to all of the other episodes from Present Tense Podcast. We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. If you would follow us on Spotify or subscribe to us on Apple Podcast and leave a review, that would help us gain listeners. And that's what this podcast is all about, telling stories that need to be told. And now we'll move into episode two of the fight for Alabama's last wild places. Ruth Manasco is an artist, teacher, conservationist, and elder in the Blue Clan of the Achota Cherokee. She, along with husband Jim Manasco, were members of the small group of citizens determined to save the bee tree in the heart of the Sipsi wilderness in the late 1960s. That determined group would eventually prevail when the Eastern Wilderness Act was signed into law in 1975. Ruth has made pottery in her studio, dancing rabbit pottery, for more than 30 years. Now semi-retired, Ruth continues to teach traditional Cherokee pottery making to fourth grade students in Walker, Winston, and Lawrence counties in Alabama and has done so for the last 25 years. This program teaches Cherokee arts and life ways to fourth grade students during Native American History Month. Ruth, named Snowbird by her grandfather, has a grace and loving gentle spirit you can't help but feel in her presence. She embodies the Cherokee principle to stand at the center of the good and is beloved by many, including her family, friends, students, patrons, and tribe. As a child, I stayed in the woods most of the time. We had a home, and then behind the home was a pasture, and then below that was the woods and a branch, and then a little mountain. So I stayed there most all the time. And Jim's parents actually owned a cabin in the forest, so he went up there all the time. 
And then he was practically raised by a group of men who did nothing but hunt and fish and go to the forest. And they taught him a lot of the old ways, the Indian ways, of how to catch fish and, all, and how to build a boat and all kinds of things like that. I was born in Carbon Hill. That's about 15, 16 miles from here. And Jim lived in the town of Carbon Hill. I was in the country. And his dad was our mail carrier. And I was in high school with his sister, so that's how we met. But Jim went to the forest just about every week then. So when we got married, we started our life going to the forest together. And the kids went with us from the time they were out of the, out of the hospital, practically. You know, we took them to the forest. We'd throw them in a backpack or throw them in a boat when we went down the Sipsy River. Went down in a little John boat and had no way to use a motor or anything because it was just so shallow. In fact, we had to, most of the time, just push the boat over the rocks and things. And Tara was two years old at the time. And Rusty was five and Tim would have been eight at that time. But it was a, a fun, fun way to get into doing things on my own in the forest because up until that time, I, my woods were just close to home. I didn't know enough about the forest then, like I learned to later on. We began to notice a lot of reforestation, you know, and a lot of clear cutting, and, and that was not good. And then, then we found out that the tree was in danger. And, you know, it's just so many people had gone to it and were starting to go to it. And we thought they would eventually try to cut the tree or abuse it in some way or, worst of all, not protect it. Yes, the tulip poplar tree, yes. And that's what we've always called it, the big tree, you know. And so we... Um, the big tree, when we first started going there, virtually had just barely had a trail and we found out that the tree you know might something might happen to it and of course the uh, danger to all the trees in the forest you know that was a big problem but when we started talking to other people and it started out more or less uh, a fight to save the tree but then it it went on to other things and became uh, a wilderness issue after that. And we discovered all kinds of things once we started working for the wilderness and working to get it passed. We found, well, I actually saw a jacarundi in the forest, which is a black little small creature, you know, a cat-like creature. It was amazing because it was, uh, Jim and I were in the forest together and I was behind the car and he was stuck and I was trying to help him get the car out. We were always stuck, always. And so I saw this critter run across the road behind me and I turned around and started chasing him because I wanted to see him. I just got a bare glimpse of him. Jim said he looked out the car 
back window and saw me chasing a strange animal up the road, you know. But that was when no one thought there was a jacarundi around. And we saw a deer in Thompson Creek that had claw marks on its hip that were about like this. Not a bobcat, a cougar. And I have a picture of it somewhere in my slides. And of course, I don't know where they are, but most of my slides are on uh, a CD now. So maybe I can find it again. But when we had the canoe trip that I told you about, it took us three days to get down to the lake. And then we put a little motor on the boat and boated on down the lake to our house here over at the A-frame. We also had a lot of Kenlock shelter ceremonies, sweat lodges with the Blue Clan. It, it was a magical place and you feel it when you go in there. And you can find the steps if you're careful, look carefully. There are, you do know about the steps that are carved out that goes up on top. And I never walked it, but some people did, yes. But I guess it's mostly hidden now, you know. And we found, um, well, Bobby or Greg, which was it? I believe it was Bobby. The first night that we had a spend the night there, Tara and Bobby talked all night long. I was sleeping. Other people were sleeping up under the shelter. And every time I woke up, they were talking. So they talked the whole night through to dawn. But when Bobby was rubbing in the sand there, just, you know, playing in the sand, he found a big crystal in there. I don't know where that came from, but he found one there. And just special things happened there. And uh, Jim uncovered some of the uh, symbols that were on the rocks, which we don't like to do, but to, to, to reckon to record it, we had to, you know. But then we tried to put moss and everything else back like it was. But then later we had to quit having ceremonies there, you know, like spend the nights. We could have a sweat lodge there, but we couldn't do a spend the night or have the meal or anything. It just didn't seem right, you know. So we started having it up on top of the bluff and going down there for the ceremonies. But it was amazing to spend the night there, and it's just not any one thing that I can think that happened, but it's just every time was magic. And one time, Jim and I took Tara and her one of her best friends up to see the uh, Kenlock area, and we got trapped in a thunder lightning storm in there. And we were back in the shelter, and I have a picture of it, and it's just beautiful and you, you're dark here, and then you look out and you can see all of the green trees and the rain falling and everything. It's a little hard to get up and down now. I don't think I could get down it anymore, but we did go down for Rusty's ceremony. We had it down there. And that was the last time I've been down. I didn't know anything about Kenlock as a child. I don't think Jim knew about it as a young person when he went to the forest either. 
I think we started going, I don't remember the first trip, or, but it was during the wilderness research, I think, when we first went to Kenlock. My grandfather, I'll show you a picture of him later, he was uh, Cherokee, and my grandmother was part, well, they both were part Cherokees, but my grandfather had the most Cherokee in him. And uh, they, he taught me a lot of things. And I, even though I was really young, I remember a lot of things. And he used to bring me hickory nuts and things out of the woods for treats. I didn't get any candy from Granddaddy. I got hickory nuts. Hickory nuts is the proper way, but you just can't help but say hickory nuts. My grandpa was something else. He was quite a character. I thought he was a lot of fun, but uh, others in the family say he was pretty stern, so maybe I was spoiled, you know. <laughs> there are several special sacred places in the forest, and Indian Tomb is one of them, but uh, it's a very special place, and it's been used for hundreds of years for ceremony, including modern times like we would do the sweat lodges there in the marker tree, which we've always called the gold post tree because of the way it is shaped. It's one of the most powerful witness trees anywhere. And its presence alone is, it signifies the spiritual of the significance of Indian to holler. The devastation that was caused by reforest in the area it was so bad when we first went in there that we tried to re rekindle the spirit of the place by planting beans and corn, squash, and then we threw, threw out bird seed for the birds to have, kind of giving something back to the area that was so devastated. Tara and Rusty and Greg and Bobby and several others were always instrumental in building it. And they would go out the day of the sweat lodge and gather the willows. And they would come back and put them in the ground and make a canopy out of the willow limbs. And then they would cover them with blankets. And the blankets were very heavy and kept the heat in, but they were porous enough that it could breathe, you know. And Rusty was the fire keeper. He took care of the stones where they got them out of the river and they piled them up there by, on the fire. And when they would get red hot, he would bring them into the lodge and put them into the pit that was in the center. And then Tara did uh, some of the lodges and so did uh, our friend who used to come. I can't think of his name right now. Charles Kennedy, yes, and he was such a nice guy. And that night we found out he and Tara had shared the same birthday, but 10 years apart. So that made him almost kin, you know. But then after they, we got into the ceremonies, it was just so special. I can't really describe it and probably shouldn't go into it too much, but it was just a feeling like I've never had in any other place doing a, a lodge like that. And it makes you feel so clean and so 
innocent and so reborn when you come out of one, you know. We've always been interested in natural things and native plants, native animals, which by the way, we discovered a lot of new species in the forest, you know. But, and then when we met this group of activists and people who were just starting this, it just kind of grew from there, so we became both. We still believe in the old ways and the spiritual part of it, but also we had to take action. And there's one little thing I'd like to read to you. For the future generations, is don't be afraid to stand up for what is right. We started as a small group of people that wanted to save a tree. We were just talking, yet in the end, we ended up not only saving that tree, but a new wilderness act was written. The Sipsi Wilderness was the first wilderness protected, and today over a million acres have been protected east of the Mississippi because of that small conversation. We had no idea that when we started that we could pull something off like this. Don't underestimate your power for a cause you really believe in. And that's the way we all feel. In fact, we lived in Forestdale when the children were little. We had a home there and we came to the lake every weekend. And every weekend we went to the forest, some part of it. And then we moved up here just so the kids could have the experience of living in the forest and living in this area, you know. And once we met that group, it was they were just so special. It was like you finally found someone that shares your beliefs and you're interested in your desires, you know. It was just like finding family. You, you edit this, I take. So I was going to insert something that when I was talking to you about Bobby coming, and I've told you this before because you planted that tree, the bush, the rosemary. At his house. He brought me about five or six limbs that were this, this tall that he'd broken off, you know. And I tried my best to root them, but it's I couldn't. It's hard to root rosemary. Yeah. But, oh, it was so special. It was just blooming so good. And I had previously had a huge one, but I lost it. It never did bloom. No. It might have needed more sun, but I can't imagine Bobby having more sun either. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, uh, because of the sun coming up here and coming this way, we're kind of shaded part of the day. So it's hard for me to grow a full-blown garden, but I can grow things. Well, you know, I have this nice pathway out there. Jim built it for me. And then later, after Rusty passed, we dedicated it to him, and that became Rusty's garden. And he used to sit on the porch right next to the garden and smoke because he didn't couldn't smoke in the house. And he shouldn't have smoked at all, but that's neither here nor there. But anyway, that he that was his spot, and so... We just felt like he was there, you know, so we have his ashes, part of them there. Oh, did I tell you the green salamander is in there too? Yeah, I saw one years and years and years ago in Kenlock. Really? 
Do you know about the Peter Si fern and the filmy fern? Mm -hmm. They're in the same family, um, trichomenes, I think it is. Uh, but the Peter Si is like one cell thick because it grows in those dark, damp places under the bluff lines, you know, where sun or, or light can't get to. And they're thin so that they can absorb the light better and grow better. And uh, I'm just full of useless information like that. <laughs> no, those are amazing. Those, are, those ferns, they're pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And the salamander has uh, spirit, spiritual significance for Kinloch, isn't that right? As part yes. Of this ancient history? It's one, one of the drawings is of a salamander or an object that looks like a salamander, yes. And when I read about Kinloch, I read that there's a legend of the of the shaman would go would like dirt dive in in Kenlock to go into the spirit world to bring back wisdom to the people. But you know, that was just something I read about Kenlock. Yes. I don't know anything about that. But I'd be interested to read it if you come across it again or know where you, it came from, you know. Yeah. I'm not sure where I read it, but it definitely had to do, it was an explanation of part of why Kenlock is a very powerful place. Mm -hmm. And part of why it's got so much spiritual significance to Native people, but I don't know where that story came from. Did you ever hear that? Do you know whether, like, the generations before you, did they also go to Kenlock? Oh, you mean the older generations? Yes, absolutely. So Kenlock was a place that people knew about as a place of worship? Right. And it very, was very well used, you can tell, you know. It, but it was taken care of. I mean, it was not any damage done except by some of the present-day folks, you know. But, yes, it's always been used a really long time ago. I don't know what the date would be when it was first used. I'm sure someone has an opinion on that and could yeah. tell you about it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I didn't take it. Um, I'm really interested in helping helping people who don't have a relationship with the forest like you do and like you do Janice to to understand what that relationship is like you know what it is and it may be a thing that's very hard to put into words um, but I'm wondering if any any thoughts come up 
or any anecdotes about things that might speak to how powerful that, you know, your whole life has been really yeah. spent in this environment. Right. Well, we're just very aware of it, so we can feel it more than people who have no awareness at all of, of uh, nature or a spiritual life of that kind. But you can take someone in there that has never had anything like that in their life. They, may, they might not feel anything, you know. But then again, then again, you might have someone who picks up on something and they feel something, but they really are confused and they don't know what they're feeling, you know, especially if they've never had any dealings with anything like this. It's a funny thing, you know, I went to Shiloh, that's up in the edge of Tennessee. I think it's Shiloh, isn't that the name of that uh, Confederate soldier burial ground? And I went with Jim's mother and daddy who were big on history. And I have, I was just very young. I was about 18 or 19 at the time. And I had the most awesome feeling there and I didn't know what it was, you know. I wasn't as aware then as I am now about things like that. But I really felt something there. And I didn't have any family there. In fact, I don't think I have a, one single person that was in the Confederacy. If I did, I don't know who it was, you know. But, it, and it wasn't because we were looking for anything in particular, but it was just that sense of something really unusual and bad had happened there, you know. So some people just can pick up on this and others just aren't aren't used to it, you know. They just don't know how to work with it. Well, you know, I told you about the Peter Cyfern and the Boise Adam. That's the filmy fern. And we also There's one plant we discovered in there that I just can't, Pachysandra. There's a cultivated kind of Pachysandra that you might grow in your yard, you know. But there's the wild one. Have you ever seen it, Janice? I'm not sure. Um, it's, it has a big leaf, and it's a, a big plant like this. Mm -hmm. But it's spotted when it's older. When it comes on fresh, new leaves, it's green. But we discovered that. That had never been in there before. And no one had it recorded there. And you know Dr. Mike Howell, he did a lot of the fishery studies. And he found things in there that were very unusual. And one day, a whole group of us were going into uh, the cave, Borden Creek Cave. And on the trail, we came across two uh, snakes that had never been discovered there before and it was well it was just an unusual variety of them they were beautiful colors that was me they were were they scarlet king snakes I believe is what they were 
and they had been found in the forest, but these two were like bright orange. I never saw anything like it in my life, you know. They were absolutely beautiful, and we saw a lot of bluebells. Of course, that's not unusual. They're all over the place. But an interesting story about the bluebells is when Jim was young and used to go to the forest with his hunter friends, the old guys who trained him to notice all of the nature. Well, he used to go in about early March, and he'd call them winter greens because the deer ate them when they were young. He had never seen them in bloom until we went in with some of the uh, naturalists that knew what they were. They were winter greens. Oh, the walking fern. Do you know the walking fern? I'm sure you do. I'd love to have another walking fern. But they're just quite beautiful. They're a little strout fern, and the little end of it will take root and make another little plant. And then so forth and so on. I guess that's all that I had written down here. It, there were a lot of different animals and plants and fish and salamanders and all kinds of things that had never been recorded in there before. And I think I heard one time that it's because this is where the northern, the southern, and the midwestern meet right there. And that is why there's such a diversity of plant, of animal and plant life there. And what is the trillium called, the white trillium that grows in the forest? Do you know it? We discovered that in there. And there's just, well, it's just because people were more aware. No one had really ever done a study like that before. I imagine a lot of scientists probably went there as individuals, you know, at different times, but no one ever went as a group or making surveys, you know. We, we listed it in, in the wilderness uh, information, you know, because that all took, that all took a part in that, um, knowing that these different things existed and needed to be protected, you know. We took Senator John Sparkman down there once. Most people don't even remember who he was, but he was a senator from Huntsville, and he was elected numerous times, I think, you know, and he was pretty well liked, but he was a big gentleman and he was getting older. We just weren't sure that he could actually walk in there, but he did, and we all took a big picnic, and so we picnicked down under, around the big tree, and we had quite a few people there. I don't remember who else, but I'm sure all of the group of people that were working with the wilderness were there, you know. But he made the walk in and the walk out just fine. It was not an easy hike even then, you know. I'd like to see the big tree again. The last time I saw it was the year I was diagnosed with uh, diabetes. And I was so tired from that hike, I was just reading when I got back to the car. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what was wrong. I just thought I was tired, but it was that. My blood sugar was really high, you know and it was exhausting, but I enjoyed it just the same. I couldn't get in there now.
but I remember it real well. And, and I had a nice picture of it. I have a photograph that I did of the bottom third, and then I watched the limbs, and I moved up exactly to the middle, and then up to the third. And then when I got that developed, I put it together, taped it together, and I had a picture of the big tree. Anyway, she, it was really old and in poor condition, but she copied it. And I put my copy away, and I don't know where it is. Maybe I can get it back from her. She's probably got it in the files, you know. I've got to have this book. I hadn't seen many books lately that I needed to have anymore because we just got so many, you know. I've got to have this. You do. You need to have it's wonderful. Oh, and I don't have a bookstore anymore. I don't even have a used bookstore. I now have a little blue book, a little e-book or whatever it's called. Do you like it? Not really, but I'm getting used to it. I have to like it. Nothing will take the place of a book. Nothing ever. Ever. But I read mostly fiction, just the kind of thing, and I like the uh, whodunits and that kind of thing, and mis mysteries. Uh, I also like just good novels, you know. And uh, so we had a used bookstore in Jasper for years, and they finally did away with her their business because of, you know, the, the internet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, I always hate to see a bookstore close. What? I always hate to see a bookstore close. I do too. But in many cities, the bookstore is coming back. That's true. Indicator that's people anywhere. do not want to just sit at their house. There's nothing like a bookstore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's true. And Have you been to the one in Mississippi, North Mississippi? What is that town where? Tupelo. No, no, further past it, where so many writers have come from in that area. I'm sorry, I can't think of, but it's famous for its bookstore. Oh, nice. It has to, to, you need to go there if you've never been. I've been once, and I would really like to go back again. Road trip, ladies. <laughs> it's, that's exactly what, you know, I haven't had any road trips in the last four years until this summer. I took three. Make me feel better and that kind of thing, so I went to Texas went to South Carolina, then I went to the Smokies. My dear little friend took me to the mountains again, and we saw the most lovely sighting of three cubs and mama that played for over an hour in a tree. And you just don't see them for an hour. So we pulled off on the side of the road, took our chairs out, and I sat in this chair, and we watched them for an hour, and it was just wonderful. I really appreciate her doing that, you know. But all my trips were wonderful. But yes, I would like to go to this bookstore if I could think of the name of the town. Well, Jim was one of a kind. He was a, a child in a family of six kids, and he felt like he was the one that was different, and he was. Yeah, and so he always did his own thing. And he spent time out in the woods and up on the mountain and exploring, and none of the other kids did that. He was just unique in that family, you know. And so he started when he was really young, and nobody took him. He just did it on his own. 
And then when he became a little older, 12, and uh, about that young teenager, that's when the group of guys started taking him to the forest. And one thing they taught him was the old way of catching fish. They would take breadcrumbs or some kind of food and put it in the stream up here. And then they would go downstream with their baskets or nets and they'd catch the minnows as they came up to feed. You know, the crumbs would float downstream and then they could catch them, you know. And then, of course, they cooked the fish over open campfires. And he has a lot of stories. He had a lot of stories about, you know, those days. Actually, one was his uncle, his ne'er-do-well uncle, whose life's ambition was hunting and fishing. He was a good guy, but he just didn't have a, a lot of uh, work past, you know. And this was his work in life. And so it, and it was all of his uncle's buddies. And one of the um, cousins had a CCC camp cabin up there. And they were like one big open room. There's probably not many left in there, but they did sell them privately after, you know, the CC boys went away. So he got to spend time up there with them too. So and there was an old tale about his uncle who stepped over a log and stepped on a rattlesnake, both feet, and he couldn't move. He couldn't move because the snake would bite him. So he had to stand there for, I guess he thought hours, but it probably was not that long. But finally he knew that he had to just jump and jump far, and he finally did. But that was quite a story oh in, amongst them, you know. Jim taught me a lot of things, and I guess I taught him a few things. Then we became interested in wildflowers, and that's what really set us on fire. We lived in Forestdale then, and we'd come to the forest on the weekend, and we'd photograph them, and we'd write down what we could about them, and we'd go home, and we'd look them up in the big books that we had and identify them. And that was, that was very exciting. I wish I could get back into that again. The people that were in the wildflowers, oh, and uh, the Audubon group, we were in the Audubon Society in Birmingham, and we went to their monthly films that they used to have at Birmingham Southern, and then we would go on field trips with them. And that's how we met a lot of the people that we became involved with. You know, we were living in Birmingham, and then we moved up here to the A-frame, but the A-frame wasn't built. We had to live in a mobile home that we rented, and we built the A-frame, and it took us three years to do it. We built it ourselves. We had a few people come in to do some special things, you know, but mostly we built it ourselves. But we still went to the forest even when we were building it. One time, well, we had so much company come to see how the house was coming along. So, oh, coffee. I made more coffee then than I've ever made. And it was just a, a, a fight to get away for even to go to the forest. So one day, 
We wanted to go really bad, and we were hoping no one would show up. But just to make sure that we could go to the forest, we sneaked down to the lake and got in our boat and went over to the marina and got our car and left there. <laughs> Don't tell anybody that. <laughs> I think all of our friends are gone anyway, though they probably wouldn't be offended. <laughs> But, oh, and we had a group of the wilderness folks come by here. There must have been 50 or 75, if not more, that came by, and they had coffee and donuts and a look around the house, and then we went on to the forest, you know. So we had some social times. We had campouts at the place, too, for, with the Audubon Society, you know, and nearly all of them were involved in the wilderness procedure. We didn't meet Lamar until much later. Uh, we were doing arts and crafts for a while, and I did the baskets, and then when they quit selling, uh, I sold some things for other people and took a uh, commission for that. And Jim painted license plates, the personalized kind, because he's a professional sign painter. And then he painted mailboxes, and he would paint the background on mailboxes, and they were beautiful. And then when the person bought the box, he lettered the name and address on it. And so it was a good thing that we, and we enjoyed life for 15 years doing that. Then we got really tired of it. We were set up in a mall in Decatur for a Christmas show. You started the week before Thanksgiving, or the week off Thanksgiving. And you went through Christmas Eve night. And I wasn't there that day, but Lamar came by and introduced himself to Jim, and they talked all day long. I, don't, I bet Jim didn't sell a thing that day. <laughs> I wasn't there to do it. So that's where we met him, and that's then we got involved with the Blue Clan, and uh, that's when we met that group. You know, the first stage was so awful and, and it was really scary at times. It was because there were a lot of hostile people uh, when we were trying to do the wilderness. And there was a lot of threats and no one ever actually did anything really bad that I know of, but I know there was a lot of talk, you know. They thought they were going to lose their jobs pulp woodcutters, that was a big part of it. And they thought that if the wilderness passed that they would never be able to use anything in the forest again. They thought their livelihood would be over. Well, you know, this happens periodically in life. What is good now, 25 years down the road, is not even going to work. I know we were out of a job like that at one time when Jim was in the sign business and had his own shop. It worked his way out. You know, we lost a big contract and never got another one, so it fizzled. We stuck to it, and they eventually calmed down, and now they even named the road the Wilderness Parkway, which I think is funny because <laughs> they were so against it at first, but people appreciate it now. And they found out that tourism is better and more profitable than it was before. But 
property for different people. That's just one of those things that we hate to have happen in life, but it does. Time evolves, you know. The first one was always had paved the way and they had gotten past that and they still had to work mighty hard. They don't give a wilderness to you unless you work really hard, you know, for it. But we weren't involved in that one so much at all because we were slap worn out in the first one. We did this for five years and Jim was self-employed at the time. And I was the, answered the telephone and did what little I could do, you know, and took care of the kids in the house. Has anyone talked to you about Blanche Dean? Do you know Blanche Dean? She uh, was a teacher, school teacher, and she was did summer camps up in Michigan and nature camps. And she taught herself bird calls from listening to records. And she learned wildflowers. And she was a legend in Alabama. And she wrote a book. And she was a very poor woman. She couldn't afford a book. So John Randolph and this other lady, Amy Mason, they all went together and did Blanche's book. It was basically Blanche's book. I have three pictures in there but only because I was so shy. I could have had more in there if I hadn't been shy. I just I just didn't share my uh, photographs, my slides, because I'd only been doing photography about a year. And I was just so embarrassed by my work, you know. But I got three photos in there. Was that her fern book? No, the Wildflowers of Alabama. Oh, they had to help her and fund her in order to get the book published too. And so we bought books, one book for Jim and I, and three books, one for each of our kids, before the book was ever published, to get some money going so it could be published, you know. So that was a real honor to know her, and she led a lot of the early trips into the wilderness before it was wilderness. She discovered the Dutchman's Bridges in one of the areas of the forest. First time they had been seen in the forest, you know. And she had this whistle. She was a school teacher to the end. She had this whistle and she would blow it and everybody that was hiking around her and behind her in front of her had to come gathering around. <laughs> you should have known her, I wish you had. She was wonderful. But anyway, that whistle was famous and one day the whistle dropped off of her chain into our car. And I didn't see her for a real long time after that. And I kept that whistle, and it was on my keychain for years. And then one of the kids used the car, and it got lost. I just hated that so much. Actually, I thought later I could have auctioned that off for some of the fundraising stuff they did, you know. Because everybody then knew Blanche. She was amazing. She was married for a year. But that didn't suit her too <laughs> The scoop program I was involved in is I do fourth grade classes in pottery. And I've done it for 23 years now. This was the 23rd year. And I take a piece of clay, maybe a quarter of a pound, and eat, provide each child with a piece of clay. And then they 
make a turtle, which has the Indian significance. And then with leftover clay, they make a Christmas ornament using cookie cutters. And then I bring them home, and I have this method of placing them in boxes with the teacher's name and the school's name on it, bring them home, and when I put them in the kill, I label in my notebook the top shelf is Mrs. Smith's oh, wow. at Curry School, you know. Right. So we get very few lost or confused, you know. But um, this has been one of the nicest things I've ever done. And we do it in October, November, because that's when the kids study Alabama history. And they study a lot about the Native American ways then. So we do it during that time. And I wear the full regalia. Nice. I have a Cherokee terror dress, but it's worn out. It is so thin that I'm afraid if I even stretch getting in the car, I'm going to tear it. So I've been wearing the leather dress. Do you know about the leather dress that I have? The group of Blue Clan gave me that dress. And the guy that made them, Gene Gold, he was going to make it for me because he knew about the education programs, you know. And when everybody found out about it, they all wanted to chip in. So everybody chipped in, and so they all paid for that dress. Oh, They're very expensive dresses. He uses the best grade of leather. You can wash it and dry it even. I've never tried it, but I do wash it. About once a year. It has to be really dirty. And besides, they're supposed to be dirty. It was really, and they gave it to me at the Indian Festival in the spring, you know. And I was just overwhelming. I had no idea, no idea that was going to happen. So it was wonderful. Can I tell you about that? Yeah, please. Beautiful. Looking at something. You should have scheduled a whole day. One of the last trips that Jim took to the forest with his friend, who's a much younger man, and, and he probably is the only person in Alabama other than Jim that like to go out and hunt trees with a carving saw. Of course, I know there's more people interested now, but this guy just happened to meet him one day, and they struck up a conversation, and they found out they liked those drawings that were on trees. And this guy had a Volkswagen thing. You oh, know what Lord. they are, without a top. And they were in the forest with that, and they were out walking in this clear-cut area going down to the forest on the other edge of it. And they heard this kitty cat meowing. And they couldn't see it, but they knew it was lost. So they came home, and Jim didn't try to catch it because of the car they were in. He couldn't carry it, you know. So he came home, and he was home about 10 minutes, and he said, I'm going back to get that cat. And he took a can of cat food and a knife, because that's what our kid cats would come to, is your knife pecking on the can, you know. And he went back to the forest, and he came home with this cat. Miss Kizzy. She's named for Jim's grandmother, whose name was Kazar. Isn't that a nice name? Kazar, K-I-Z-Z-A-R. Maybe two R's, I can't remember. But we shortened it to Kizzy, because they called her Kizzy. But she weighs about 14 pounds. She's one big girl. She's 12 years old now. 
No. Yeah, by about 12. She's a lucky girl. The last time I saw Rusty, he brought that cat to our bedroom. We were in bed, and he pitched the cat in bed with us and uh-huh. said, you can't go to sleep without kissing. Uh-huh. So that was the last I saw him, last time. I can, I guess that's why she has a lot of significance. But she loved him, and she used to, oh, just on his beard, she just loved on him and kissed on him, and she just absolutely loved him to death. <laughs> When he called and brought the on the way home, he called, and I said, "What color is the cat?" He said, "What color would you like for it to be?" <laughs> we knew that. Oh no, not another calico. <laughs> Calicos sometimes turn out to be a little, you know, have a personality all their own. She's one of the prettiest I've seen. She looks like a patchwork quilt. Most yes. all of her spots are like big squares or rounds. Mm-hmm. I think the other side is prettier than this side. And look on back of her head, it's the striped kitty. Going back to being in the perimeter of the forest uh, when we were children, but we weren't together. We didn't know, know each other, but we both went to Clear Creek Falls, which is one of the nicest things ever. And I went there when I was in high school, and there was an upper falls and a lower falls. And I have a picture of myself standing on top of the falls. Mm -hmm. I don't think Jim had any photos. But back in the early, very early 1900s, my mother lived across the lake in Black Pond, and her father was a logger, and he had a sawmill. And they would occasionally take their wagon and mule and come down as close as they could get to the falls. And then they would unpack their camping stuff and go down and camp under the falls for a few days and catch fish. And that was probably Mm -hmm. the only vacation they ever had. And I think it was probably mostly for food, you know. But I, and that's just across the lake from here, so I think it's interesting that I've ended up on mm-hmm. across from where she grew up, you know. Is that, um, did those falls, did those falls get uh, covered up when the, like, yes. when the crew cleared it was down? Yeah. Yeah, I've heard and that so I've, sad. I've seen pictures of those falls, and they were spectacular. They are. They're the, they're the nicest things. The top falls is the one I went to, and the water on the top was just about this deep. You could just wade all over it, but the gushing water coming off was just beautiful. It was. There was a lot of rare plants under there, and I didn't know about plants then, but some of my friends back in that day, they were older than I was a good bit, and they had dug a lot of plants from down there you know, before it was backed up. They didn't expect that lake to back up for five years to be a full lake. And it became one of those rainy seasons that it filled up like in a month's time. And this lake was supposed to take five years to fill. You live long enough, you see lots of things that are surprises, especially to me. But I've mostly done okay with it. (laughs) Sometimes I'm... A little taken back, but I usually get earn to cope with it, you know. Oh, <laughs>
Thanks to cellist Craig Hultgren for our theme music. And to the White Horse Singers for the episode music. Thanks to Janice Barrett of Wild South for her help with this episode. You can learn more about us at presenttense.media. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. Please leave a review. And thanks for listening to the fight for Alabama's last wild places. Wild places.